Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, you'll notice we've got many scattered throughout um, the seats there, and that's going to be on page 977. So in the Bibles we provide you, page 977. So we're starting our new series on community, on togetherness. What does Boston think of? If we were to ask just anybody in Boston, when you think of the word together, when you think of community, what do you think comes to mind? Now let me try to paint a picture for you, a pretty clear and relevant picture and fresh in my mind. I had the privilege last night to spend some time with Jay as we just prayed for them and their church in Tampa, and we got to enjoy the Red Sox game last night. Now let me just paint a picture to you of togetherness. Um, this is a picture of togetherness there. Last night, you've got food, you've got drinks, you've got a great game, you've got thousands of people gathered around you. You don't really know a lot about who's next to you, but everybody seems to be together. I mean, everybody knows the songs, right? Take me out to the ball game. Everybody knows the lyrics. Sweet Caroline, Dirty Water, anybody? You're, you, I see some heads going, you've been to a Sox game, you know, um, I'm shipping out to Boston. I mean, everybody, it's, and then last night, the Sox are down two to one, bottom of the ninth, and you know what happens? Walk off home run to win the game, three to two. And what happens? I mean, the place goes nuts. I mean, it was, it was one of those games you've got Josh Beckett and David Price. It was a pitcher's duel, very few hits until, you know, there, there wasn't any run scored until the last few innings. And so, I mean, then this is this climax. And then what happens at that moment? What do you see? You look around and you've got grown men giving each other bear hugs and high fives. And it's, it's like, you know this person that you've just experienced this with, and that is community. That is togetherness. I mean, that is, we did this. And then you leave Fenway because the Celtics game is in the fourth quarter, and there are five minutes left. And then now the, the whole street there, what's it, Yawkey Way, I think is what it's called. The, the, car, the cars can't even move because... Everybody's standing in the streets watching the TVs that are inside of all the pubs that you can't get into because they're packed out. And now you're watching the end of the Celtics game and you're about to rehash it again to see the Celtics win. That is community, huh? Is that community? Is that togetherness? Now, here, here's what I want us to think about today. You see a picture here on the screen. Recently in Newsweek magazine, Andrew Sullivan came out with this article. Follow, let me step back. It says, forget the church, follow Jesus. Now another kind of picture of togetherness, of community. I'm trying to stimulate your thoughts here. What is community? What is togetherness? Where is it found? I mean, if you read his article, here's basically what he's saying. Christianity 
has been destroyed by politics, priests, and get-rich evangelists. So forget the church. Follow Jesus. Now let me just pose a question for you. Can you follow Jesus and forget the church? Something we ought to ask. Now, he may be, he's right maybe in a lot of senses. Is the, has the church erred in many ways? Yes. Has the church blown it in many ways? Yes. But is the solution to forget the church and follow Jesus? I mean, where would that lead? So today, we're going to look at this first truth, and it's going to be this, grow together. So as we look at together, the role of community groups and redemption in our life, we're going to look at grow together, specifically looking here in Ephesians chapter 4. Now before we get going here, let me just help us out here. Growth here needs to be defined. And let me just be clear, we're not talking about numerical growth. I'm not up here to, to just continue to preach on, hey, we need to boast and grow in numbers. But let me just, I'm going to make a, a little caveat and, and then I, I won't hit it the rest of today. I do believe this, a healthy church that's growing spiritually together, I think a byproduct of that is numerical growth. We could walk through the book of Acts and you know what we see in the book of Acts? is as they're being faithful to, to the word, to community, you know what it says time and time again? And daily the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So I'm not going to come back to that, but I do want you to see our focus is spiritual growth, but a byproduct of a healthy church will be numerical growth. So Ephesians chapter 4, let me set the stage for us because we're primarily going to be in verses 11 through 16. When we come to chapter 4 in Ephesians, it's... Basically, the first three chapters, you could say, are a lot of things that you need to know. And then Paul is saying in the last three chapters, chapter four and following, now go do. So now that you know these things, go do these things. So we see chapter four, look at verse one here. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The first three chapters, he has fleshed out this calling, what it means to be called by God, to know God, and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, hey, you used to walk this way. You used to walk in sin. But now, through the calling of God, through coming to know Jesus, you are to walk in a different way. You are to live in a different way. How are we to live? Now, before we read here, let me just help you with your thinking here. Our initial thought, how we're going to walk and, and how we're going to read this text, is going to be individually. You're going to read this text, and here's what you're thinking. Okay, what am I supposed to do? What, is, what are the implications for me as I read this text? So, so let's just remember this. Who's, who's the context here? Who, who's, who's the recipient of this letter? Is it an individual? It's not. It is the church. We could go back to the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who were in Ephesus. This is to the church, to the body, to a corporate body here. So let me just, here, here's how we need to read this. We need to read this not necessarily on an individualistic scale, 
But on a corporate scale, how does the church walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Now, obviously, what is the church made up of? Individuals. There's going to be an individual component to it, but we can't lose this corporate component. So with that in mind, I'm going to jump down to verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I'm going to pause here real quick. The main point of this is is that Paul's pointing to, hey, you're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, one of the ways you do that, one of the primary means is, hey, Christ has given everyone spiritual gifts. And these gifts are to help foster you living and walking in a manner worthy of your calling. So just setting the context, everyone has gifts. He gave gifts, verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now verse 11. And he gave. This is is getting us back to he gave gifts. Now he's, he's fleshing this out. What did he give and what are the implications for the body? Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Some of your translations may say pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Did you get that? Why did he give these gifts? So that they would do all of the ministry? Is that what it said? No, he says, he's given these gifts so that they may equip who? What's it say? Equip the saints. Those that are at Ephesus. The the members there, the body. The purpose of these gifts is that they would be equipping gifts. Equip the corporate body, the people, to do what? The work of the ministry. Now, I know I've kind of just raised some questions, but I want you to see where we're going. We've got to ask, okay, if, if these are what these gifts are for and they're to equip, how do they equip? And then what is the work of the ministry? We'll get there. Hang in there. Hang in there with me. He continues on. The work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ. All right, pause one more time. What is the ultimate goal? You've got gifts. They're to equip the saints to minister so that what would happen? That the body would be built up until what? They would be built up. They would grow until what happens? To maturity in Christ. So get this, the ultimate goal here, the big picture, is that Paul wants to see believers mature in Christ. And then he's working backwards. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, somebody's got to help them get there, which means somebody's got to be equipped if they're going to help them get there. Do you see where we're going here? All right, let's continue reading. Verse 14. So that... When you see us sow that in Scripture, you're gonna, you know its purpose. Here's the reason why, we want, why He wants us to be mature in Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. 
Why is it crucial for you to pursue maturity in Christ? So that you would not be tossed to and fro by the waves and wind of deceit, of false doctrine and false teaching. Here's his concern. That the church, the body there, would, would lie prey to false teaching. And then they would turn from the faith. How do we guard against that? Maturity. Maturity in Christ, which is going to teach them, help them to discern false teaching and error. That's his goal. Verse 15. Now he's getting to some specifics. Rather, this is a strong adversative. He's like, so that this doesn't happen, this is what I would rather happen. This is what should be happening. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Do you hear our word, that, word there? Grow together. How are we going to grow up? What does he say here? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's kind of the, the argument's pretty plain there. Pretty simple what Paul's doing. Now what I want to do is step back and, and, and ask a few questions and lay a, th a few truths out there. And, and here's where we're headed. Here's the main point, the main truth of what this is all about. You should commit to a body where you can grow and help others grow to maturity in Christ. Man, this is pretty simple. What is the goal? Maturity in Christ. How does that happen? That happens as you commit to be equipped to grow, and then as you grow, you help others grow. Maturity in Christ. This is where we're headed. This is simple, and, and I'll, let's pray that God would, would lead us, teach us, convict us, and guide us on how this can happen, not just in the church at Ephesus, but right here. Let's make this happen. That's my goal. How, how can we foster this in the life of Redemption Hill Church. So I'm going to draw three truths to kind of flesh this out. And the first one is this. Grow together by growing in Christ. Grow together by growing in Christ. Let's just, just reflect back here for a second. None of this growth can happen or will happen apart from Christ. Why? Who gives the gifts? What's the text say? Who's the giver of the gifts? Christ is the giver of the gifts. What are the purpose of the gifts? To equip for the work of the ministry so that people would what? Be mature in Christ. Not only, not only is Christ the giver of the gifts, He is the goal. So he is, he's the giver, he's the source, he's the means, and he's the goal. This, this is what happens. Our growth here is, is about gospel-centered growth. Redemption Hill exists to glorify God by living out his mission as a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our growth must be connected to Christ. So I'm just going to flesh out a little bit of this um, as we think about it. So Jesus is the source of the gifts, which makes it clear. I don't make you grow, you don't make me grow. This is all dependent upon Christ. Christ is the source. And this also means that if he's the source, who gets the glory? 
He gets the glory. Now we're going to talk in a second. Every one of us are part of the body and we have a part to play. But, but this helps us keep everything in perspective. It is all about Christ. He is the one to get the glory. So he is the source of the gifts. He is the source of the body's unification. Think of this concept here. Who, in verse 16, 15b and 16 in Ephesians, he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together grows. Who was the head? Christ is the head. We are the body. He's using this picture here. What does that imply? If he's the head and we're the body, preeminence, authority, and source again. We must be connected to the head. I'm also reminded of John 15:5. It's a verse we use a lot, but it's real. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we've got to get this. If you are going to grow together, you must first of all grow in Christ. He is the source, and then finally, he is the goal. What are we after? I mean, as we go about things, what do we look to to give us a picture of what this is all about? It is Christ. Jesus is the example. He is the standard. And notice what verse 13 says here. In Ephesians 4, look at verse 13. It says, until we all, let me ask you this. Is maturity in Christ just for a few believers? What's the text say? Oh, because you know what? I know you're thinking here. I know what you're sitting here thinking. Yeah, maturity in Christ. Okay, that, the pastors need to be mature. Um, that would be a good thing. Um, you know, maybe if you're a community group leader, you need to be mature. You know, it, yeah, but, but that's, that's, not, that's not for everybody. We have to buy into this. Maturity is for us all. It is for the body. The whole body would be mature in Christ. And what is it in verse 13? How does he flesh that out? He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What he's doing there is he is contrasting the children mentioned in verse 14. When you think of a child, what do you think? Do you think of maturity? No. You think of immaturity as a child. Children are gullible. Children lack understanding, perception, and they are easily influenced by others. You get that? So the, the picture here in verse 14, is, it's basically turmoil and confusion. Every wind and wave. And, I mean, that is not what we want. That, that is not a, a pretty picture there of, of life in a church. But rather maturity, you get this firm, this, this steady, this, this confident because of a confidence in Christ. So let me ask you this. How does an infant grow to maturity in Christ? How does that happen? If you have to answer that question, an infant in Christ, how do they grow to maturity? Let's just think for a second. We've got some infants here in the room, right? 
I'm a father of three, um, and our oldest is now just kind of out of the infant stage into the toddler stage. But here's what happens for an infant. They're, they're born, you've got breastfeeding, maybe formula, and then the, the goal is not for them to stay there, right? The goal is that they would move on to, I mean, it's a joyful day when they actually can get some solids. You know, they eat some solids. But, but eventually, the ultimate goal is that they can eat what? I mean, table food. Eat, somebody say meat. Eat meat. Eat, eat table food, right? Now, there are many reasons why we want to go after this goal. For parents, when they can feed themselves, I can sit them at the table and give them the food and they can eat. That, that is a great relief for a parent. Anybody there with me? That is a great day when they can just eat and you just, you know, they'll eat for hours. If you need to do something, they will just eat. I, I had a very real experience of that this morning. Um, as I was home alone with all the kids as my wife was running a half marathon, and I did have a little bit of help, but you can let them eat. But the goal is that they would grow up, that they would eat solid food. Look, a, a an infant will not grow to maturity just on, on breast milk. It's not going to happen. They've got to eat substantial food. What about mentally? You're just growing in their capacity. You start with what? I mean, right now, my son Owen can barely even say dada. You know, it's like, man, is that all you got, bud? Um, you know, use your words. Please, thank you. You know, you want to you get them to say some of those things. But the goal is not for him just to continue to babble the rest of his life, but that he could grow up and have an intelligent conversation that he could read and grow in his knowledge. You don't want him stuck on the ABCs for his whole life. Now, spiritually, how does this happen? Or maybe I should just ask you this. If you had to put an age on your spiritual maturity, what would it be? Now, I'm not saying how many years it's been since you came to faith in Christ. I'm wanting you to step back and just kind of put a mirror, put a mirror there and say, I mean, what's your age? You know, we joke all the time, right, uh, with birthdays. You know, as you get older, now I'm into the 30s, um, you, you start reflecting back on the glory days. Um, and so it, the joke is, oh, you, hun, you, you still look like you're 21. And and that's a positive thing, right? Because you think of 21 as like the prime of your life. Your knees are still in good shape. Your back doesn't hurt. You know, you've got all the looks, everything like that is it. And, and so that's a compliment. But what if I were to say to you, man, you still look like you're two. Is that a compliment? That's not, right? Let me just ask you this. And I can't answer the question. What would be your spiritual maturity? If, if you're 21 years old into faith as a believer, do you look like a 21-year-old? Or do you still look like an infant? Now, this would be my fear. And, and this is not our goal. Our goal is that we don't stay infants. The goal is that we can look two years, five years, ten years from now and look back on the life of Redemption Hill Church and say, you know what? We are growing. We're not infants anymore. We're not struggling with the same things that we used to struggle with. But you know what? The goal would be that the believers that are here now are growing and that there have been some others that are now infants that we can actually say, hey, I was there five years ago, 
three years ago, and, and I'm not there anymore, and I'm growing. I want to help you. You see the picture here? How does, how does this growth happen? It must be Christ-centered. It must be gospel-centered. So, man, before I move on to the next year, let me just, everybody listen up here. You can't grow together until you know Christ. That, that's the foundation. And, and that's what Paul would say to you. He's assuming here in the letter, he's already laid out the gospel. But let me just ask you, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you have a relationship with Christ where your sins have been forgiven, you've trusted Him, and He's transformed your life? That is the foundation. The gospel is the foundation. It is central. So for some of you today, it is to, hey, I need to be born. I need to become an infant. I, I need to start that growth today. And I would challenge you, don't wait till tomorrow today. And the way you do that is through believing, repenting, trusting in Jesus, and you follow Him with your life. It's what we sang earlier. You look to the cross where he has wiped your slate clean. It is by faith. Redemption Hill Church, we need to grow by growing in Christ. Secondly, we need to grow by committing to redemptive relationships. Grow together by committing to redemptive relationships. Can you grow in Jesus and not commit yourself to others? This is getting back to the Newsweek article. Forget the church, follow Jesus. And I'll just say this, the Bible never separates your individual devotion from the church. It never separates that. They always go hand in hand. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay a few truths out here for you. The first one is this, you can't be equipped if you don't allow others to equip you. You can't be equipped if you don't allow others to to equip you. I mean, this is pretty simple. It's one thing to know that Jesus has given you a gift. It's another thing to know, man, how to use that gift, how to thrive and, and use the gifts God's given you for the ministry, for the work of the ministry. Second, you, you won't grow apart from others speaking the truth to you. What does Ephesians 4.15 say? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Do, have you committed to redemptive relationships where people speak truth into your life? Why do we need that? Why do, why, do, why do I need somebody to speak truth into my life? Well, it's based on this foundation. The first foundation is this. Man, I'm a sinner. Even as a born-again follower of Christ, I still sin. And you know what? I love my sin. All of us do. And sin thrives. You know where sin thrives? In the secret and in isolation. That's where it thrives. And so if we're going to grow, we must commit to redemptive relationships because these are going to expose the darknesses in our life. Not only that, we, we won't grow if we're not connected to the body. This is the picture here. He's the head, you're, you're the body. In verse 16 there, let's just read that again, verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. If you are not committed, connected to the body, 
neither will you grow individually, and then corporately, the body is suffering. And, and let's just kind of look at this corporately, because I know I've been pinpointing and really asking individualistic questions. A lot of the thrust here is that Paul's goal is he wants unity in the church. He wants them to be unified as a body. And, and uni- you can't have community without unity. I mean, even just think of the words there, com- community. It's there. there. Community applies some sense of togetherness, of a unity there. And, and what Paul's getting at is that, you know what an immature body looks like? An immature body is going to look like nobody is committed to one another. There are not redemptive relationships where people speak truth to one another. But a, a mature body is going to be a body where these relationships are fostered and growing and thriving. And the local church looks more like a body. And, or, and this isn't a dead body. This is an organic, alive, functioning body. And everyone is playing their part. How connected are you? Look at this quote by R.C. Sproul. I think it really gets to the heart of it. He says, It is both foolish and wicked to suppose that we will make much progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Indeed, it is commonplace to hear people declare that they don't need to unite with the church to be a Christian. They claim like their devotion is personal and private, not institutional or corporate. This is not the testimony of the great saints of history. It is the confession of fools. I want you to just think about that. I mean, what is, what is your view? I know he's pretty, pretty harsh here. But the reality is, is you don't see Scripture push these apart. They actually go hand in hand together. And I even love, I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, why, do, why do we isolate ourselves? Why, why do we push back to this? Um, Paul Tripp has, he says this, we have a love-hate relationship with relationships. On the one hand, we want them. But on the other hand, we don't. Do you sense that at all? We, we long for these relationships, but we know what are these relationships? That, that relationships are messy. And relationships aren't easy. And so on the one hand, we want them. We know we need them. On the other hand, we know, man, this isn't easy. So, let me just step back and ask, so what is the role of community groups at Redemption Hill? I just want to answer that question because I know that's kind of a part. We want to grow together and, and together through community groups. And just know that what we're teaching today doesn't primarily, isn't just primarily happening through community groups, but we have created, the reason we have community groups is we want to foster this because we realize, hey, what happens on Sunday morning is not enough. You can come, you can come and listen to a sermon, but this body functioning doesn't happen it happens on a more local, on a, on a smaller scale. And, and let's just be honest. There's no way that I or you can know everything that's going on in everybody's life here. You can't. It is impossible. There's no way that you and I can care for everybody here. So what we've done is, is community groups is a way for, uh, for us to get small, to get intimate, to help foster these redemptive relationships. What happens at community groups isn't another Sunday morning. We don't stand up and preach and teach for an hour and a half or whatever. What we do is we ask, how are we going to apply the word together? We ask, man, how are you growing in godliness? We, it, it's an opportunity where we commit to let others speak truth to us and we speak truth to others. So let me just, let me just ask you, how does your life 
right now allow you to develop relationships that are deep enough, deep enough to grow and change? Do you get that? How does your life right now currently allow you to develop relationships that will foster growth and change? Or maybe I could ask this another way. What's hindering these relationships in your life? What's hindering you from fostering redemptive relationships? Is it the busyness of life? Life is so busy, so I'm just going to push these away. Is it just, man, you think they're too messy? Maybe it's this. I mean, you've got a formal commitment to church and its activities, but not to people. So, man, I'm going to do all the church activities, but people, I'm going to push those away. What about this? You're always just ministering to others and not allowing others to minister to you. Or maybe you're, you're the one that's, man, you're just soaking it in. You just want people just to keep ministering to you, and you're never ministering out to another person. Hey, are you the guy Andrew Sullivan's talking about here? Are you the person that's basically said, man, I've got just a me and God approach and I'm going to push everybody else away, man. I just want Jesus. And what's hindering you? Or maybe I was, Let me ask this. What needs to happen or change so that you can form redemptive relationships in your life? What's got to happen? What's keeping you? Man, let's make some changes today and let's see this grow and foster in your life. Last truth I want to get to as we wrap up. Man, we need to grow together by growing in Christ. Secondly, we need to grow together by committing to redemptive relationships. And then third, we need to grow together by speaking the truth in love. Hey, and this is right out of the text here. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. When we look at the overall purpose of this, we see that it is not primarily pastors, teachers, these gifted people that are to speak the truth in love. And I'll just say this, they can't do everything. A church will not flourish with just a few leaders who invest in people. It will not happen, and it was never created to be that way. I know I haven't really fleshed out who these gifts are here. He mentions here in verse 11, apostles. And what I want you to help us think, let's make sure we distinguish the office from the gift. So I think this will help us even clarify here. Originally, who were the apostles? There were 13 of them. They had to either have seen the, re- they had to seen the resurrected Lord Jesus, been with him during his ministry. So you've got the 12, and then after Ju- Judas, they replaced him in Acts chapter 1, and then you've got Paul. And those are, that's the office of apostleship. They didn't have the New Testament, and so they were the main ones God was using to affirm what he was doing. It was through these, these chosen men. Now, is the office of apostle has ceased. Now, the gift of apostleship, I would say that if somebody has the gift, not the office, the gift, that that's going to be, that may be something similar to like a missionary. Their, their primary goal is establishing new churches in new areas where there is no gospel witness. So maybe a missionary would, would be a sense of somebody that's sent out to a new, maybe a church planner would be similar to this gift, gift of apostleship. This, he, he mentions prophets here. We look at the Old Testament prophets. Prophets were primarily concerned with communicating divine revelation. And so just real quick and short, I believe what's going on here is that now that we have the full and completed canon, that prophets in the sense of divine revelation we don't need any more divine revelation we have all of the divine revelation that we need here um and so may 
may be prophets and may have some prophetic sense, but not in a divine revelation sense. Um, We see this a few places in Scripture. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it today. We can flesh that out in community group this week, and you can ask more questions there. But then he goes on the evangelist. Obviously, that would be clear. Sharing the gospel, focused on um, leading people to faith in Christ, and then pastors and teachers, which would have more of a local feel, shepherding a flock and teaching. Now, pastors will be teachers, but teachers may not necessarily be pastors. And there is even a question here on whether this is this is one office or whatever here, a pastor teacher together. But the point is this that I want you to see. They can't do it all. And the text says that's not their purpose. What is their purpose? It is to equip. So let me just encourage you to see this. Who are they to equip? The saints. Everybody. You all are to be equipped for the work of ministry. And you know what? This is mind-blowing because you, many of us don't get this. Many of us think that God is concerned that, okay, that me and my spouse are in good terms and that my kids aren't delinquent and, okay, my job is going well and, and I can take some vacation and God is concerned with me to have a comfortable life. But no, li- listen here. God is in the midst of rescuing people from the dominion of sin and growing them up to maturity in Christ. And listen, He wants you to be a part of it. That's not just pastors or or leaders in a church. That is the body as a whole. You get to be a part of this grand story. This is awesome. So don't don't be so shallow in thinking that God just wants you to be a part of of a church and have a great family life. Man, He wants you to actually be a part of speaking the truth in love to others. So here's the view. You commit to Jesus You commit to others, and then you serve others. So a ministry should be done by all. The second point there, it should not only be done by all, it should be a ministry of the Word. I love what Paul Tripp says here. He's got this quote. He says that ministry, what Paul's talking about here, is that God transforms people's lives as people bring His Word to others. God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. Notice this, this ministry here. What are we equipping? It is a ministry of the word. Why the word? Why is it a ministry of the word? The word is living and active. It is powerful. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. The way we grow, it is by the word. And so... What's happening here is actually pretty simple. I want you to get this. The picture here is basically called a biblical friendship. Love people. Know people. Speak truth in their lives and help them. And how do you do that? With the Word. So it should be a ministry of the Word, and then finally it's a ministry that should be done in love. Motivated by love and done in love. I've got a few quotes I want you to to wrestle here with me. The first one is another one by Paul Tripp, and he says this, the combination of powerful truth wrapped in self-sacrificing love is what God uses to transform His people. Truth and love. 
is what God uses to transform his people. Look at this other one. This is by Bonhoeffer. I love Bonhoeffer in a book called Life Together. He says this, Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe, severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Do you see what's going on here? Speak the truth in love. Do you have love for the person next to you? And the picture here is not a, it's not a, a pharisaical, hypocritical, condemning. It is motivated by love and it is done in love. And it is a ministry of the word. There is no more cruel thing that says to you, that, that you say to somebody who's in sin, oh, that's okay. You, you keep living that way. But it is love. It is compassion that compels us. In our community groups, what compels us to speak the truth in love is because I love this person and I don't want to see them. They're blinded by sin and darkness. And I say, man, wake up. This is going to destroy you. I love them. It is a motivation of love. And what about this? How much, how much wasted time could have been redeemed in our lives if somebody, some of our faithful friends, just started telling us the truth and love. Man, how much wasted time would you have in your life, what I have, if some of my close friends would have just, man, in, in love, spoke truth to me? Who in your life right now is God leading you to minister the word to and love. I guarantee you, there's probably somebody in your home. There's somebody at your work. There's somebody in your neighborhood. And I guarantee you, there's probably somebody in our church that you could do somebody good. And notice this, this ministry of the Word is not always confronting sin, even though it is, but sometimes it's, man, it's encouraging. Maybe it's coming along somebody saying, man, I see what you're doing. Keep doing it encourage somebody with the word. Maybe it does involve reproof and rebuke and, re and correction. Maybe it involves sharing the gospel with somebody. That is a speaking the truth in love. You see somebody that doesn't know Jesus, saying, this is what is going to be the outcome of your life if you don't trust in Jesus. So let me wrap up with this. If you came up to me today and said, John, I love this church. Man, I'm committed here. I want you to plug me in. What do I tell you to do? I mean, as a, as a new church plant, you know what our initial thought is? Man, there is a ton that you can do. But what do we usually think? We, we usually start thinking of some type of position. Well, you could be an usher. You could take up, you know, you could be a treasurer. You could play in the band. You could help out with the children. You could help out in the first impressions. That's our usual thought, right? And, but what, what happens if all of those positions are filled? Is there any place for you? Do you see where I'm going with this? If the ministry that we're to be equipped for is a ministry of the Word and it is about people, let me tell you this. Will we ever run out of opportunities for you to serve? So let me ask you this. If you come up to be, I want my first inclination to be this. Who around you can you minister the word to? I don't want as a pastor here, my inclination to be thinking, man, we need to fill so-and-so spots here. And let me just say, for those of you serving in children, for those of you serving in first impressions, for those of you that are doing our, our sound and our computer and our end of the band, yeah, that's you and Long and Fisher over there. 
That, that, those are minuscule things. That is not, those are just means. The primary thing that God wants you to be about is ministering the word, speaking the truth and love to one another. Let, let's be a church. And I'll just say, if we, if we could just look forward five years from now, if we will commit to growing in Christ and knowing him, loving him, if we will commit to one another, commit to redemptive relationships, and then if we will seek to speak the truth in love, we will grow by leaps and bounds. And I'm not talking numerically. I'm talking about mature, genuine followers of Christ, and we will start to see this city transform with the gospel. Not only will we grow, we will start seeing people come to faith in Christ because we're asking, and we're not just saying, hey, I serve in the band, so I've done my service. We're always asking, who has God placed me in? What are the spheres I'm in so that I can be a, a minister of the word? Now, you're not off the hook. Let me say this. You may be saying today, man, John, how could I do this? You know what my responsibility is? To equip you. So that's not an excuse. So I'll just say to you that if that's you, you come up to me and Tanner and say, I need to be doing this. I don't know how to do this. Help me. And you know what? That's what we're here for. That's what we want to see happen. And not just us. We're trying to train up others that we could say, go to this person. They can tell you how to do it. And how great would it be if we had many people that somebody's saying, hey, I know that I'm supposed to do this. And we say, man, that it doesn't necessarily have to come from me and Tanner, that we can get multiple people that could show you what it looks like to do somebody good. Man, this, this, this is a beautiful picture of what God could do in our church. Let's pray for this. Let's be open to this. And I pray that God uses this text today to stir our hearts, to see this fostered in the life of our church. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, I pray you would give us all humility to see our need for redemptive relationships. God, I need, even as a pastor, I need relationships where people can speak the truth to me. God, will you give us all that humility, but God, will you also equip us to speak the truth and serve others? God, would, would you grow our church deep in knowing you? And God, we pray through that, that the, the effect of that would be that, man, more and more people are coming to know you and growing from, from infants to maturity. God, let it not be said of Redemption Hill 20 years from now that we still look like a two-year-old. God, grow us. Use us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.